0: This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 179. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 103 through 106 and follow with some thoughts about the after credit scenes of the Hanukkah story and the lessons learned. Psalm 103 begins and ends with the call Bless, O oh my being Adonai. Which loses a little bit of the flavor in the English translation. Barchin of Shirat Adonai would be rendered more colloquially as, Bless, O my soul, Adonai. And this is arguably the first time in over a hundred Psalms where the poet turns that inward to call upon his own soul or being to praise God for all the good things. But as the Psalm unfolds, the poet's gaze expands outward from within to the people then humanity, then the eternity of the universe itself. God is good. God, quote, forgives all your wrongs, heals all your illnesses, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with kindness, compassion, sates you with good while you live. You renew your youth like the eagle. God is also merciful. Quote, compassionate and gracious, the Lord, slow to anger and abounding in kindness. He will not dispute forever nor nurse his anger for all time. Later, the poet attests, quote, As a father has compassion for his children, the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. The psalm concludes with a call to the universe to praise God, quote, Bless the Lord, O his messengers, valiant in power, performing his word, to heed the sound of his word. Bless the Lord, all his armies, his servants, performing his pleasure. Bless the Lord, O all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless, O my being, the Lord. If Psalm 103 travels along the x-axis, emanating out from the poet like a line from a single point, Psalm 104 moves along the y-axis, traversing the world, and the z-axis through time. The poet is in awe of God, quote, "...wrapped in light like a cloak, stretching out heavens like a tentcloth, setting beams for his lofts in the waters, making his chariots the clouds, he goes on the wings of the wind." But then the poet projects back to the beginning of it all, creation, when God, according to Genesis, subdued the primordial seas, forcing them into oceans, seas, lakes, rivers, and streams. It is these bodies of water that provide life for all creation and makes it all possible. Quote, They water all the beasts of the field, the wild asses slake their thirst, above them the fowl of the heavens dwell, from among the foliage they send forth their voice. He waters mountains from his lofts, from the fruit of your works the earth is sated. He makes the hay sprout for cattle, grass for the labor of humankind to bring forth bread from the earth, and wine that gladdens the heart of man, to make faces shine brighter than oil and bread that sustains the heart of man. The night sky is also a big player in God's scheme. Quote, he made the moon for the fixed seasons, the sun he appointed its setting. You bring down darkness and it turns to night in which all the beasts of the forest stir. Looking at creation, the poet cannot help but think, quote, how many your deeds, O Lord, all of them you do in wisdom. All the earth is filled with your riches. Psalm 105 is a psalm of praise, but also an historical psalm, as it enumerates all the miracles and wondrous events God did on behalf of the Jewish people from the period of the matriarchs and patriarchs, where God, quote, recalls his pact forever the word he ordained for a thousand generations, which he sealed with Abraham and his vow to Isaac, and he set it for Jacob as a statute for Israel, an eternal pact saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the plot of your estate. And then we have a quick recap of the story of Yosef, which explains how it is we ended up in Egyptian bondage, followed by the exodus, the miracles of the desert, and the occupation and settlement of Canaan, all of which leads to a single point, quote, so that they should keep his statutes and his teachings, they should observe, hallelujah. Psalm 106 leads with some praise, but then follows with the following admission, we offended like our fathers, we wronged, we did evil. And the poet lets it all hang out, spilling the tea about the goings-on at the Reed Sea, the lack of faith popping again when the Jews were thirsty and bitterly beset upon Moshe, Then the shenanigans of Datan and Aviram, who agitated the people into revolt, followed by the golden calf incident, and the straying into idolatry, not once, but twice, the waters of Merivah, which got Moshe canceled from entering the promised land, and all those incidents of idolatry after the Jews crossed into Canaan. That is egregious! That's egregious! Indeed it is. It's a pretty sordid list when you present it like that. But even so, the poet makes a pitch, quote, rescue us, Lord, our God, and gather us from the nations to acclaim your holy name and to glory in your praise. And with the concluding doxology wrapping the fourth book of the Psalms, here endeth the lesson. Psalm 106 begins with a refrain we've heard in previous Psalms, quote, Hallelujah, acclaim the Lord, for he is good, for his kindness is forever. In Hebrew, Verse 2 begins with the words, Now, which word would you expect to come next? Perhaps if you hear it sung, it might jog your memory a little bit. The correct answer? Gvurot That's right, it's a Hanukkah song Miyamalel, which translates as follows Who can retell the things that befell us? Who can count them? In every age a hero or sage came to our aid. Hark! In days of yore in Israel's ancient land, brave Maccabees led the faithful band. But now all Israel must As one arise, redeem itself through deed and sacrifice. The Maccabees are the heroes of the Hanukkah story, that ragtag band of brothers who lit the spark of the revolt against the Syrian Greeks and purified the temple, found that one cruise of still pure olive oil for the menorah that lasted for eight days and for the first time in about 400 years set the stage for Jewish independence in the land of Israel. And scene. But the Hanukkah story is like one of those gifts that ends too soon. Because if you stick around for the after credit scenes, you'll discover that the story continues. The Maccabees, led by Judah, morph into the Hasmonean dynasty, who, like the Lannisters, leave a lot of bodies in various places. And I could go, you know, do a four-hour or hardcore history-style blow-by-blow of what follows from the days of Judah the Hammer, but suffice to say that it does not end well. Then again, it kinda doesn't even really begin well. According to the account, we tell our children, the spark that started the fire was not the desecration of the temple, but Matityahu, when ordered by Syrian Greek officers to commit a public act of idolatry, commits murder instead, killing a Hellenized Jew willing to make the sacrifice as well as the Syrian Greek officers. But the ending is even worse. All those values that we believe the Maccabees stood for, religious freedom, purifying the temple and freeing the Jewish people from foreign occupiers, subsequent generations of Hasmoneans would undo all of it. The Hasmoneans would rule as kings and in some instances function also as high priests. They would accelerate the integration of Greek culture into Jewish culture. And one king in particular, John Hyrcanus, would expand the kingdom, occupying lands to the south, and in the process, forcibly convert the Edomians to Judaism. Apparently, he wasn't really a big fan of religious autonomy. Two generations later, a civil war between two rival Hasmonean brothers tears the kingdom apart, and an Idumean convert, Antipater, playing both ends against the middle, assures himself a position of influence while paving the way for Roman general Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, better known as Pompey, to seize Judea and bring it under Roman control, thus ending Jewish autonomy in the land of Israel until the mid-20th century. In short, maybe the Maccabees were cool, but the Hasmoneans were not heroes. Which is why it's so jarring to revisit that Hanukkah song in light of Psalm 106. Psalm 106 will not recount the glories and heroics of Israel, but the glories and heroics of God, who intervened on behalf of the Jews in the desert. The same generation of Jews that never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity and sin when they could have been grateful, but the larger question is whether a mortal person could ever grasp the enormity of God's wonders and human language to praise God properly. The poet in Psalm 106 is humbled by this acknowledgement. This position, one of humility and modesty, stands in stark contrast with the version we're more familiar with, a song which trumpets the success of generals, the nation-state, and triumphant victory in war, echoing a sentiment expressed with discomfort and caution in Deuteronomy chapter 8, quote, Now should you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have produced all this wealth for me. The verse continues. Then you must bear in mind, Adonai your God, that he was the one who gave you the power to produce wealth in order to establish his covenant that he swore to your fathers as this very day. The song kind of forgets that part. Maybe it, like the Hanukkah story, it's a song that ends too soon. Sadly, no. Instead, we kind of gloss over the lessons of the Hasmonean experience or we learn them but didn't want to remember them. Many Jews today see the Maccabees slash Hasmoneans as paragons and take great pride that this Hasmonean spirit animates certain institutions in Israeli society. As the song says, brave Maccabees led the faithful band, but now all Israel must, as one, arise, redeem itself through deed and sacrifice. And creating this connection between the Jews of today and the Hasmoneans was not a coincidence. Menashe Ravina came to Palestine in 1924 from the Ukraine. He studied music in Germany. He was a secular Zionist writer and music critic. He patched together the lyrics of Miyamalel, Malel, borrowing the first three words from Psalm 106 and supplementing it with biblical and Talmudic sources. But if we look into one incident during the Hasmonean monarchy, we can also see how early rabbinic Judaism began to coalesce around the idea expressed in Deuteronomy and later in Psalm 106, one that does not privilege hubris, power, and the brutality that comes with it, but humility, gratitude, and peacefulness. It is the story of the festival of the drawing of the water, recounted in the Mishnah, Tractate Sukkah, and the Tosefta, a compilation of second-century Jewish tradition, and elaborated upon in the Babylonian Talmud as well. At that time, the Hasmoneans were kings in Israel, but because of their family lineage, they were also kohanim, priests who served in the temple. How convenient. As priests, they were also part of another elite class, the Sadducees. The Tzadokite tradition was more fundamentalist, more literal when it came to the Torah than that practiced by the majority of the people, which was based on a more liberal interpretation of Torah as well as acceptance of local tradition. This more liberal tradition was known as the Pharisaic tradition, from which, historians say, rabbinic tradition ultimately emerged. Suffice to say, there was a conflict between the Tzadokite elite and the Pharisee majority, especially around traditions that didn't appear in the Torah. These conflicts, because of who was who, also took on a political nature as well. Tasmanian kings often persecuted the rabbis, arguing that the rabbis fomented rebellion against the monarchy. The rabbis just didn't think it was appropriate for one family or one man to concentrate so much power in their own hands. The Talmud in Tractate Kiddushin records one such exchange where, quote, there was a certain elder present named Yehuda ben Gedida, and Yehuda ben Gedida said to King Yanai, King Yanai, the crown of the monarchy suffices for you. That is, you should be satisfied that you are king. Leave the crown of the priesthood for the descendants of Aaron. Yanai did not like that comment. So when it came time for the festival of the drawing of the water, Yanai decided to show the rabbis and the rest of the Pharisees who was in charge. The festival of the drawing of the water is attached to Sukkot, the fall harvest festival. The drawing of the water tradition, we think, evolved in connection with the transition from fall to winter and the rainy season. A proper ritual might guarantee proper rain, which would guarantee a proper growing season in the spring. So each morning of Sukkot, the Kohanim, the priests, would go to the pool of Shiloach in present-day Silwan to fill a golden flask with water. Their procession would be met with shofar blasts as they passed through the temple's water gate. Then they ascended and poured the water so that it flowed over the altar simultaneously with wine from another bowl. However, when Yanai served as high priest, he made a show of spilling the water at his feet. Keep in mind that the people present were there to observe Sukkot. They had palm fronds, leaves of myrtle and willow, and a citron in hand. So when the people saw Yanai dump out the water at his feet, they went ham and unloaded on the king slash high priest. They pelted him with citrons. It's clear from this anecdote and countless others in the sources that the Hasmonean way, one which consolidates power and uses that power to run roughshod over people and their values and practices, is not the way. It's a bug, not a feature of Jewish tradition. This message is reinforced in the run-up to and aftermath of the Bar Kokhba revolt. One could say, that perhaps the rabbis developed this attitude because they're losers. And as such, they developed a loser mentality that Menashe Ravina and others were trying to shake off. Or one could say that the rabbis' collective wisdom made them very uncomfortable with the power and those who exercise it. For them, it's not the paraphrase of Psalm 106 that's of value, but the original, and the countless warnings in Deuteronomy, as well as the latter prophets, about how Jews are supposed to be in the world a way that's worthy of a madrigal, but not a victory march. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for Tanakhcast at patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 180, when we continue in Psalms with chapters 107 through 110.